Matthew chapter 27 from verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. When Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Then Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing, sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Thank you, Laura, and thank you to Graham and our musicians and to Norman, uh, who prayed uh, for us. Now, our theme over this Easter week has been four days that changed the world. The four days being Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of the first uh, Easter week. And today we come to uh, what is really make or break for Christian faith, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we're talking about a literal physical resurrection. Jesus was God, but he was fully human. He lived and he died. And Matthew's account makes it quite clear to us that he was dead and buried. 
he really was dead, and uh, arguments to suggest that he had merely swooned or that he had lapsed into a coma uh, on a Roman cross uh, really don't uh, stack up. He was dead. And he rose from the dead. And Christian faith is grounded and based on that fact. So it's a big deal, both for those who are Christians, is it true? And for those who are not, is it uh, true? Now, before we look at Matthew's account of Jesus' resurrection in a little detail, and you'll see there are some headings on the sheet, what I'd like to do is pause and take a few minutes to consider what for many is the key question, is Jesus' resurrection from the dead fact or fiction? There were lots of folks at the first service who were here as guests who weren't Christians. And one of them said to me afterwards, helpfully, that is the key question. I agree it's the key question. I'm not sure he was persuaded, but he did agree it was the key question. Is Jesus, was Jesus raised from the dead? It's important for Christians, as I said, because our faith is based on it. And for uh, people who aren't Christians, of course, it is a question that merits serious consideration. For if it is true, the implications are far-reaching. My conversation after the first service went a little like this outside. How could it possibly be true, though? Because there are no categories that we can draw on in terms of natural phenomenon to explain the appearance of an angel or the resurrection of a dead body. And I agreed with that. But I wonder if we should be cautious of concluding that something is not true simply because we do not have the categories to explain it or understand it. And we cannot draw on natural categories to explain the appearance of an angel or a resurrected body. The realm we are in, and I think this is logical, is supernatural or the divine. And that is not something that we can explain. It is something, and Christian faith always requires a step, not a step in the dark. It is a step in the light. It is something, though, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that needs to be accepted, not explained or understood with natural explanations. It needs to be accepted because the evidence is simply overwhelming. And I think that's a logical and a fair way in. But let me set out for you very quickly, and I promise very quickly, uh, you can ask people at Service 1 and they'll tell you it was really quick. See if we can do better. Uh, a number of reasons to believe that Jesus' resurrection is fact and not fiction. And uh, there are plenty of books and whatever you can read that give more detail. The first and perhaps the most important is that it is established by eyewitness testimony. 
I mean, I think it's logical for us to accept that Jesus could only come and live and die and be raised at one point in space and time history. That was in the ancient world 2,000 years ago. Um, were you living at that point, that would have seemed like the most important time to live. But he only could come at one point. And what we need, like any other part of history, is evidence. And we have it in these four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eyewitness testimony. Matthew, Luke, and John were written by three of Jesus' close group of disciples. Matthew was there. He uh, was there um, when Jesus lived, when he died, and he was one of the disciples who met Jesus uh, when in Galilee, as uh, we are told in this passage. He was there. Uh, Mark uh, was not there, but his gospel is based on the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, describe the resurrection of Jesus as a fact. And you might have heard, you know, Christians or churches, people saying the resurrection need not be a fact, it might just be a myth. A, a kind of, the Bible does not say that. Every, it's always a fact. And what's also striking, and you'd have picked this up from the narrative that uh, was read, is that all four Gospels cite numerous other witnesses. So they pepper their narratives with witnesses. Matthew said it was this person, that person, this person, that person. Secondly, uh, the historical evidence is quite simple and credible to understand. The grave was empty, the grave clothes were neatly left behind, the stone enclosing the tomb was rolled away, the body of Jesus was never, ever found. Three, there are, I think, 11 recorded occasions that Jesus appeared to people proving that he was resurrected. And these appearances were, strikingly, to men and women, to individuals, to couples, to groups, and to one crowd of 500 people. The appearances were inside and outside, in different locations at different times of the day. Some people touched him, some people poked their fingers in the nail holes in his hands and his feet. He was audibly heard, he was visually seen, and he ate food. And I think what the gospel writers are doing is drawing together all of that evidence to combat all sort of sub-questions to say, well, he wasn't real. Four, Luke, the writer of one of the gospels, wrote a second volume, The Acts of the Apostles. And if you read through The Acts of the Apostles, what the apostles did in the early church is took time to explain the evidence persuasively for the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the early church was birthed in such a period of intense persecution and opposition that, that had these things not been true, they would have been discredited. They would have been, it just wouldn't have succeeded plausibly. Uh, the New Testament letters all assume the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then number six, <clears throat> I've, I guess, alluded to that. If it was fiction, it would have been exposed by the people who were there. So at the time of the earliest Gospels when they were written, Mark's Gospel, for example, and Luke's Gospel, and the letters... They were written and circulated when there were many people alive who themselves had witnessed the events that these books described. And they could have, but they did not refute it. Now, 
you can come back in any of these comments with other questions, and I think that's fair to say that. But the weight of evidence is, is really strong and compelling, at least, to consider it seriously. Uh, seven, uh, many uh, died proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. You will not proclaim Christ's death and resurrection, and yet they did, and they died for it. People still do. The growth of the early church was phenomenal. Moreover, eight, I am going quickly. We could slow down now, though. The resurrection of Jesus was not a random event. It wasn't something that happened, and therefore explanations needed to be found. It was predicted by Jesus himself. He said he would die, be buried, and rise. And it was predicted centuries before through numerous prophets. Nine, it is part of a coherent worldview. Now, let me just pause there. What's a worldview is just an explanation of stuff, matter, humanity, whatever. And the Christian worldview is persuasive, logical, logical, in that we have problem as humanity, we have sin and we die. Jesus came to earth as God to live as a man, to die in our place that our sins might be forgiven, to reconcile us to God. He was raised that we might be raised to everlasting life. There's a logic to it, a coherence to it. That worldview makes sense of the world. You may not agree with it, but it does make sense. And I think if the Christian worldview doesn't make sense, then it isn't something to be believed in or followed. It does make sense. Sometimes I, I think that even as a preacher, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, sometimes I feel when I speak about the Christian gospel, it's too good to be true. Now, what, why do you keep saying it? Because the collective weight of evidence all around it is so compelling and so strong. And the number 10, which is a big, big deal, and not something that is theoretical or abstracted from our lives, but right there, front and center in our lives, we are all going to die, and the factual bodily resurrection of Jesus is humanity, our only hope in the face of death. Let me give you a number 11. Um, one of the great uh, privileges I have as a Christian minister is to be with people at that stage of their life. Some of you here were in that uh, dark valley with your loved ones only very recently. And paradoxically, when a Christian grows frailer and older and closer to death, their faith and confidence in the promises of Christ like resurrection grows stronger. That doesn't really make sense. It kind of makes sense to hold on to a promise like the resurrection from the dead when you're a long way out. But when life begins to crumble and when the darkness of the valley surrounds you, I'm increasingly persuaded that if this were not true and supernatural, it would scatter and be found out. But instead of being found out, 
it is extraordinarily persuasive in these crisis times. I just leave that with you. Now, whatever your view on that sort of set of ten comments, and there could be many more, I wanted to share that with you just to give you a kind of yardstick to say that there is real plausibility, real persuasiveness to Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, let's turn to Matthew's account and uh, uh, just spend some time listening to how Matthew explains this. Now, you'll see on the sheet and in your Bibles, I've just taken two words, I think, to explain it. Resistance and acceptance. I think this is fascinating and spot on and it's true and it's how it is. Resistance first, and I think that is the right word. Resistance is not about having doubts. No, I certainly have, and you might well have. Resistance is not about having questions. It's nothing to do with that. Resistance is about a kind of implacable refusal to admit that it might be true. And interestingly, my observation over a number of years of Christian ministry is that that is more common. I'm just not interested. It can't be true. Or I don't want it to be true. That's more common than, I don't understand, I've got lots of questions. I'm struggling to understand. It's like a supernatural resistance. Now, let's look at that. Verses 62 to 67 describe events that took place on the Saturday. And uh, sometimes as preachers, you look up because you're saying something positive. Sometimes you look down. I was looking down at that moment just because I was conscious that talking about resistance, there might well be resistance in here. Might well be. Or in your home as you listen to this. Now, uh, verses 62 to 67 describe events that took place on the Saturday. That's between the Friday and the Sunday. Yeah? Yes, that's obvious, isn't it? Saturday is the day between Friday and Sunday. Okay. You learned it all here. Uh, The religious leaders, uh, and these are the religious leaders who are complicit in Jesus' death, the Jewish religious leaders, knowing that Jesus had said he would rise again after three days, asked Pilate to order the tomb to be made secure in case Jesus' disciples steal the body. Then claim fraudulently that Jesus has risen. You might be thinking... Maybe you're listening online and saying, well, that's fine, but this is Matthew's account. So how do you know Matthew is telling the truth? That's a good question. And again, it comes back to the cumulative weight of the provenance, which is the the popularity and the provenance and the spread of these gospel books in the ancient world. 
at a very, very hostile time. None of that was changed. None of that was doubted or discredited. They had known that Jesus had said he would rise again, so they go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they ask Pilate to issue an order that the tomb is guarded. Ask Pilate, the Roman governor, and no one's going to mess with him. That's the idea. So they went, uh, Pilate said yes, and they, they used their own guards. The, the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, the ruling council, had its own temple guards, and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, that's quite striking. Let me just pause there. What did they do? They, they put a seal on the stone, a great big stone, but they put a seal on it, you know, like a, a, an envelope type thing. And they posted a guard. Now, what are they afraid of? I, I think they're afraid that Jesus might actually be resurrected and they'd be proved wrong. I wonder if that gets us to the anatomy of the human heart often. I'm just not going to give it any time in case it's right. Now, think of these uh, religious leaders. They had seen the supernatural events on the Friday. They had stood at the foot of the cross. They'd mocked Jesus. But they'd seen the, 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 the darkness of the sky, the, the, the earthquake. Uh, they had... Uh, heard, I guess, if they were at the cross, that in the temple, the moment Jesus died, the great big curtain that was the height of this room that separated the Holy of Holies from where the people were was ripped and they would have gone to see it. I mean, because they would have. And they would have heard of the remarkable stories that were spreading around the city that when Jesus died, some of the tombs in the city had given up their dead as a foretaste of the resurrection of all believers. Moreover, they knew the scriptures. They were gospel. They were uh, uh, religious leaders. They knew the scriptures of the Old Testament, and they did not doubt for a minute about the supernatural power of God. After all, they are all celebrating the Passover feast at this time in Jerusalem, which recalled the events of the Exodus, the extraordinary events of the Exodus, where God had had broken into the affairs of His people and miraculously delivered them out of captivity. They didn't doubt that. They knew about the supernatural power of God. So what are they doing? Putting a seal on a tomb and posting some soldiers. It's like they're running scared. Now, I'm more confident what I'm going to say now is true because I... I said it in service one, you know, you read something somewhere and you think, is that made up? So I asked anyone to tell me if it was, but no one did, so it's probably true. Uh, one of you is going to tell me it's not. Uh, David Hume, you know, the great, uh, brilliant Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, gave detailed instructions, as you did then if you were wealthy, for your tomb. And he instructed Robert Adam, who designed much of Edinburgh, to build a mausoleum but he must put it on top of his grave to stop his body being resurrected. That's absurd, isn't it? Well, I think that's true. And what's striking about what David Hume did is it's a kind of, for someone such a brilliant mind, it's kind of running scared. I almost think, well, if, if it is true, 
Jesus is not going to be able to resurrect my body because there's a house on top of it. I think he will. Now the other end, uh, Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15, the two Marys run to tell uh, the disciples Jesus is risen. Some of the guards who had witnessed the angel at the tomb, remember the guards who had witnessed the angel at the tomb, they went to the city, it's logical, and reported what had happened to the religious leaders. And what happened at that point is, I think, the most extraordinary thing in this narrative. These religious leaders who had seen his death, Jesus' death, and how he died, they had seen the temple curtain ripped to shreds. They'd felt the tremors and the earthquakes in the city. They'd heard of these people who had come out of their tombs. Their own guards had come back to say there was an angel. The disciples didn't make the body. What did the religious leaders do? They took counsel and paid the soldiers to lie with the added threat that if they didn't go along with it, they would tell Pilate that they had fallen asleep. It's the kind of worst kind of political manipulation, isn't it? Spin. Willful fraud. A blind, implacable refusal to believe in the face of all of the evidence. And perhaps we're thinking, well, this is Matthew's account. If you read through the Acts of the Apostles, and when you get into the Acts of the Apostles, the description of the early church, that material is corroborated by a number of external sources beyond the Bible. The, The hostility and persecution of God's people from these same religious leaders was intense. Carried on. The more and more people who were converted to Christian faith, the more and more people who believed in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the more implacable the opposition got. And that's exactly how it is still, supernaturally. It is often the way of established religion. I don't want to have a pop at established religion because I think we're much more religious and established than we think. Established religion or resisting the real gospel, the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus... And what happens in a time when the church, and this is happening in the Western world and the big denominations, retreats from its position of influence? What happens if you are a religious leader in a position of influence and you don't have it anymore? The only way you can hold on to it is by spinning the message. Because you're not going to get a seat at the table proclaiming Christ died for our sins and Christ was raised to give us life. It's not. So you end up with a kind of insipid message. It doesn't really say anything. People just fall asleep listening to it. No, they don't. They are comforted and persuaded and beguiled into thinking it will be all right in the end. Now, Rightly or wrongly, my sense is that this sort of implacable refusal, resistance to even give time to consider carefully the evidence, why did 
people not do that because of the implications. It means Jesus is Lord of my life. We find it really hard to do that. And there's something in the human heart, I, I think, which is, is really, really striking, is that we find it extraordinarily difficult. I do, and I'm sure you do too, to say I was wrong. We'll almost, we'll almost be prepared to, to, to lose everything rather than admit we were wrong. So Colin Ward, when he approached me this morning, I love Colin and the Lord, he's a lovely Christian, but he is a supporter of another team in Edinburgh than mine. And he looked at me this morning and he, he just looked a touch arrogant. And I had said to him, you know, we're definitely going to win. And I said to him this morning, I was wrong. That's a trivial example, isn't it? People find it awfully difficult to say they were wrong. And in the sheer face of the evidence, People say again and again, I will not have it. So here's a, a, a typical funeral occasion for me. Uh, I do a funeral and I try and explain the gospel and I put my head down because I don't want to look because in front of me, people, they sort of do that. They fold their arms and they don't even have the courtesy to sing Psalm 23 out loud at someone's funeral that they loved. It's so arrogant. What's going on? Surely if you go to a funeral, you're desperate to know if it might be true that there is resurrection. It's supernatural. It's resistance of the human heart. It's the implacable inability to accept that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Now, that might be, I think that's true. It's what we see. But let's come inside these brackets on either side with this other stuff. Uh, which I've called acceptance, 28, 1 to 10. And I think people often move from the resistance to acceptance. I mean, all of us who are Christians, who became Christians in adult life, which is many of us here, we went from resistance to acceptance. We didn't go from neutrality to acceptance. We just didn't give it the time of day. We didn't care. We didn't bother. And then we became, what's the difference? What's going on in the middle of this little section? Well, let's read it again. Uh, that's... Uh, um, because we're doing well with time. Uh, chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. After the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat in it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come see the place where he lay. I mean, it's very striking a language, isn't it? There's nothing here about mysticism or myths or this or that or the other or ethereal. You came to look for the dead body. He's not here. He's alive. Go and tell the disciples that he is risen. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. Listen to the language. There you will see him. See, I've told you. Go and look. See for yourselves. Behold, Jesus, uh, they departed quickly, rather, from the tomb, verse 8, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples. And then that wonderful moment, verse 9, is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Jesus met them. 
What a wonderful moment that must have been. And they fell at his feet, worshipped him. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will uh, see uh, me. Now let me uh, summarize the gist of these verses with three phrases. Number one, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Christian faith is not believing and then seeing. That is a leap in the dark. Christian faith is seeing and believing. It is a step in the light. It's a very different thing. Jesus, logically, could only live at one point in history. We can't see him face to face. We can't meet him. So we look at evidence for those who did. But in our hearts, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we meet him spiritually. Now, Notice the refreated refrain throughout the text, seeing is believing. Where it is in verse 6, he's not here, he is risen. Come see the place, come and look. And they did, and they didn't see a body. And we believe their testimony. Verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. And they did. They did. Peter stands up in his introductory sermon and said, I saw him raised. I've seen him. I've been with him. Verses 8 and 9, the women are running to tell the disciples Jesus met them. I've already said it was a wonderful moment. I'm going to say it again. Aren't you envious of that? What a wonderful moment that might have been. Jesus met them. When they saw him, they came to him, bowed before him, clasped his feet, held on to him, no doubt wetting his feet with their tears, and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Seeing is believing. Of course, that is what happened. Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. We'll look at these tonight. Verse 17, when they saw him. Seeing is believing. You might say, well, I'd like to see him. I'd believe if I saw him. I'm not sure you would. I'm not sure you would, unless you're willing. They saw him. We believe their testimony. Believing in Jesus is not blind faith. It is not a leap in the dark. It is a step in the light into the light. You know what the step is? The step is being willing to see. Being willing. Being willing to see. Jesus met them. Being willing. And that takes humility. Second phrase is, do not be afraid. What a, what a, I mean, there's a logic to it. The angel said, don't be afraid. I'd have been afraid if I'd seen an angel sitting on a stone. Can any of you tell me why the angel sat on the stone? Because <laughs> the answer in service one from someone is because he did. It's a little detail. It's almost like, it's almost like humor to say, look, 
I know you built this great big house on top of the grave so I couldn't be resurrected, but I'm just going to sit in the stone anyway. Who knows? Don't be afraid. Jesus' first words to these women, what are they? Greetings, do not be afraid. That's a terrible translation. It's much better like, it's me. Don't be afraid. The first words of Jesus when he began his public ministry were repent and believe. The first words of Jesus risen from the grave, it is me, do not be afraid. Now, it is not sentimental to say what a massive difference it makes in a human life to navigate through life and being a Christian does not make your life any easier, not one bit. But navigating through life with these words, it's me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the stuff of today, the stuff of tomorrow. And yes, this cuts into, we had a, a woman here in the first service who is Ukrainian, she's a granny, she's here looking after her granddaughter, the other granny looks after the granddaughter here for the other half of the year, she lives in Russia, they're both Russian, there's a little microcosm of what's going on, Russians against Russians, she said to me this morning, there is blood in the streets, our country is being ravaged. Will you pray for us? And I said, yes, we are praying for you. And she quotes these words, Jesus said, I am not to be afraid. And that's a powerful, powerful text. Why can she say that? Because in the end of the day for a believer, Jesus' words, do not be afraid, are in the context of what? Resurrection from death. Do not be afraid because death is not the end. Do not be afraid. Now, her testimony is very powerful. Do not be afraid of judgment. Do not be afraid of condemnation. Do not be afraid. We'll sing in a few minutes these words. They're from uh, Corinthians. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to sing them in a few minutes and we're all going to smile and they're going to warm our hearts. Now, they are. I want you to let your mind go to a very different context when you sing these words. When you are in the valley of the shadow of death or holding someone's hand as they die or at a graveside, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And, and, 
and, and shouting out from the pages of these eyewitness testimonies and history is Jesus Christ saying, it's me. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. I am your good shepherd. You will not fear my rod and my staff. They will comfort you. Do not be afraid. And then thirdly, go and tell. Christian life is not a complicated one. Do you remember as little kids? My kids are not little kids anymore. You used to go to primary school and you had show and tell on a Friday morning. Do you remember that? No. Show and tell is you brought something in and you told a wee story and you got a star. Here we have go and tell. And here is the commission to the church of Jesus Christ in the world, to every local church, to Chalmers Church, to Charleston Church as we were praying, to all the churches that you represent in this country as you join us today as visitors, to all the churches of Christ, the commission is to go and tell, to go and tell, which is exactly what we are doing now. And all over the world, and this Easter day will be no different. People will come from resistance, acceptance and they will hear these wonderful words of the Lord Jesus stealing upon their hearts come and see it's me don't be frightened and go and tell well let's be quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer Our Father, we all know our hearts can be very hard and resistant. Will you help us to slacken off our resistance and to be willing to come and see, and to look at the evidence with an open mind. And having done so, and perhaps for many of us here many years ago, to keep hearing these simple words, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. Don't be afraid. But don't hold on to me. Go and tell. Go and tell people about me. Go and tell what I have done for you. Go and tell this good news to the nations of the earth. Will you help us, Lord, to do that? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.